Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Lord, we give you thanks and praise that you have from of old declared to us your very word, your promises ascribed uh, through men carried through the Holy Spirit, that we might be able to know of your truth and your faithfulness. Lord, that you have promised to us that those who hear by faith uh, shall be saved. And we pray, Lord, that we would seek to live a life that is blessed. Lord, as we meditate on your word day and night, as we are trees planted by streams of water, yielding its fruit in its season. Lord, that as you have said, Lord, blessed are those who hear the word and keep it. Lord, help us to hear with our ears, our spiritual hearts, that we might be able to comprehend the very blessed news of the Savior coming. Lord, help us to be able to hold fast to you. Lord, that we would hear your word, but also help us through your spirit to be able to keep it. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Exodus chapter 12, verses 43 to 51. This is God's holy, inerrant, infallible word. Please take heed how you hear. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. But every slave that is bought for, of, for money may eat of it after they, you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. As we read the Bible, we often read it through a lens of, through our own eyes in the circumstance and times that we uh, read them. We read them from 21st century eyes. Often uh, words change and take on new meanings over time. We have personal application to them. And we need to understand that as we read the Bible, that the people that originally read the Old Testament scriptures did not grow up in 20th century or 21st century Western civilization. That during the New Testament, all that the people had were Old Testament scriptures. During Jesus' ministry, they did not have a New Testament. This happens over a period of time after Jesus ascends. He tells them that he's going to recollect and give them words, as remind them of what he has said. But here, we, we often think there's a huge gap 
between the pages of Scripture of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we think that there's a great big divide that one is for an old time that does not apply to us, or that the New Testament is all that we need to be able to read and understand. And there's a big gap. We often see them as two separate religions. We read the Old Testament and see this great gaping disconnection between the two. But that is not how the New Testament authors, as they pen the New Testament, understood their relationship to the Old Testament. They did not think of it as completely wiping out the Old Testament and saying, let's start from scratch. You turn to the very first page in the New Testament, and if you do not understand the Old Testament, you're going to have a very hard time understanding why there's a genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. The New Testament always connects to the Old Testament in various ways. Again, they did not see themselves as making a new religion, but understanding the fulfillment of the Old Testament and writing of that fulfillment. The Westminster Confession of Faith explains it this way, that there is no, not therefore two covenants of grace differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations. So what does that mean? There's not an old covenant in the Old Testament which is this is how they received grace in the Old Testament. And then a New Testament grace, which is received in a different way. What they say is there's the same substance, it's the same covenant of grace. What they say different it doesn't differ in substance, it's the same substance, that substance is Christ. One and the same. But they have various dispensations, various administrations. They still receive the same substance through faith, through different avenues. That the old and new had different administrations underneath this covenant of grace. They explain this covenant of grace as God freely offers sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in Him that they may be saved and promising to give unto all those who are ordained to eternal life His Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. And here, this is the covenant of grace that God freely offers to them, Jesus Christ, and then sends the Holy Spirit to be able to fill them in faith, to be able to, um, uh, as they say, willing and able to believe. And we understand this, and we understand and start to read the Old Testament in a whole new light. And many of us might start to read through the Bible in a year at this time. We often get to chapters like Leviticus. And when we have this view that this is an old way of salvation or or, or a different type of religion, then why would we read it? But when we see that it's the same substance we are looking for, Christ in the Old Testament, and we start to be able to fathom why we still have it in our Scriptures. We start to be able to see the beauty of scriptures in their union, in their parts, in their unity between the whole, but also noticing the differences. As this week we finish chapter 12, and then next week, Lord willing, we'll we'll come into chapter 13. These are really one big section, where as they're, they're leaving, they're told of these instructions of how they are to be able to celebrate and live as they go to the promised land. 
and we'll be looking at it in two parts. And this week, we see the covenant community and the meal of celebration, the covenant community and the meal of celebration. The first thing that we notice here is covenant separation. Covenant separation. What does this mean? One aspect that we need to understand when we're talking about any type of community, not just a community in the Bible, we're talking about something that unites people together with their common bond or common union. We notice in this passage that not everybody is treated the same way. There are groups and groups of people who are excluded from celebrating the Passover meal, the covenant meal. We're told several times that certain people shall not eat the Passover meal. In verse 33, in verse 45, in verse 48, no foreigner, no hired worker, anyone who is uncircumcised. Now, in our 21st century years, in, in a group of, that have grown up on playgrounds where we're told not to exclude anyone, this sounds ludicrous. How can you exclude somebody? That is surely some form of lawsuit waiting to be able to happen. But before you throw up your arms into the air, and we need to understand a little bit about these particulars. Mainly that the idea of any form of community automatically separates anyone from that community. That a community in itself does not include the entirety of the whole human race. And even if you were to include the whole entire human race, then you're still excluding someone because someone, as in other animal types, would be excluded from that community. So automatically, the definition of a community limits its scope to a certain particular group based on a certain particular uh, theme or items. If there's disagreements or disunity in that, then it does not really have... You couldn't really say it's a common union. So communities are formed based on faith, interests, fan clubs, beliefs, causes, plethora of additional reasons. But if you were to remove that common union, that thing that unites these communities together, then there would be no community. Even today, communities that claim to be the most inclusive community so welcoming and affirming, self-professed, is probably one of the most limiting in its and unwelcoming communities. So we need to understand that, you see, the members of the community get to decide what that unity is and centered around. It can't be imposed from outside. You can't have someone saying, well, I want to be a part of this community, and I'm going to change the rules of what that community is. It always comes from inside. And when we're talking about the Christian church, that common ground is always what God says in his word. Now, we might have various disagreements on small different things, but they're not the things that bind us together. That's why things like creeds and confessions are written, to be able to help us, to be able to say, these are the common things that we share with each other. These are the things that say, this is what we are as a covenant community. Anything outside these bounds, we might say you're a brother in Christ or, you know, we're happy to call you uh, brothers or, you know, people made in God's image, but we would say that they're not particulars that we share. So we'll see this more next week, but 
here in the Passover meal, they're to celebrate it every year. And it's a reminder for a particular thing to be able to remember what God had done for them, that he had brought them out of the land of Egypt and saved them, and that he might be their God and they might be his people. So now we understand why there might be people that are excluded. They're celebrating something that God has not done for them yet. The God with his outstretched arms saved his people. Why would anyone outside want to be able to come in and celebrate that meal if he had not done that to them? If they did not believe that he was their God. So we see a similar idea as we look to the New Testament that not everyone should eat the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Paul instructs the church that divisions in the church can be a good thing because what it actually does, it divides those who are genuine from those who are ungenuine, those who are fake. He explains that the celebration of the Lord's Supper is to be proclaimed in the proclamation of the Lord's death until he comes. Why would everyone want to be able to celebrate that? But he clearly makes the point in verse 32 in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, explaining that the, the discipline comes from the Lord in order that they might not be condemned from the Lord. So here we see there's people that are eventually going to get condemned outside the covenant community, but there's people inside the covenant community that are disciplined now. The Lord treats them differently. So we see this covenant separation. But we need to understand that that covenant separation doesn't mean that that covenant can't be inclusive. That's the second thing that we see here in this passage, is the covenant inclusion. That covenant separation does not exclude people from the covenant. Well, what does that mean? So here in this passage, you see no foreigners, no hired workers, people that are uncircumcised are not allowed to partake. Well, these are specific terms, specifically a foreigner and a hired hand, are specific terms used in the Mosaic Law to be able to speak about those who are merely passing through, visitors. They're looking to be able to go back to their homeland. They're not making their permanent resident there. They've either come in modern terms on a tourist visa, passing through, or they're coming on a short-term work visa to be able to work for a particular time and then return to their homeland. So it's not that they're they're not wishing to be able to become of that covenant community for a large amount of time. But the separation doesn't then mean that it's permanent exclusion from the covenant community. Really, there's one thing that divides people that are inside the covenant community and outside the covenant community in this time in Exodus chapter 12. That here is the sign of circumcision. That you can have people come from many different places, many different countries, and they're welcome to be able to take of the covenant meal of Passover. You see here that a stranger was to sojourn. They are able to keep the Passover if every male is going to be circumcised. So the distinction is not based on nationality, but on their relationship to the covenant promise. Again, as we understand what unites the community together and what the purpose of a covenant meal might be, that is their relationship to the covenant promise. 
And the Lord promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 17 that I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout all their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God to you and to your offspring after you. And in verse 10, as speaking of the same covenant promise, he says that this covenant shall be kept for the Lord that every male should be circumcised. And then later in verse 13, he explains that this means to be an offspring of Abraham, both he who is born into your house and he who is bought with money shall be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. So here, the sign of the covenant is to be administered to not only Abraham's sons, but also those who are part of his household, who have joined and and merged with his family. What makes someone the offspring of Abraham, as Paul points out, is that they share the same faith that Abraham shared. Those born in his house were to be, and those brought into his house. But a large part of this covenant promise is this is the covenant promise in which God speaks and tells Abram that his name should be Abraham. So as the sign of the covenant of circumcision is administered, God also reminds Abraham that he is to be a blessing to other nations. And he says in verse 5, that for I have made you a father of multitude of nations. So even as this sign is administered and told of, there is this expansion of the covenant community that is not specifically just for Abraham's biological children. That this covenant is to include people from outside. In Romans chapter 4, we get to hear what the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says of Abraham in this time. And he says in Romans chapter 4, verse 18, In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he was told. So shall your offspring be. Here the Apostle Paul connects that covenant community with this this promise of the covenant community growing from many different nations, that Abraham would be a father of many different nations. Even that term father, you think about the term offspring. We often think of biological offspring, but here that term father that is used shows that he is the father of many different nations. So how does anyone know if you're in the covenant community to have the sign of the covenant community applied to them? In this instance, in Exodus chapter 12, it's a sign of circumcision. In the New Testament, we have a new sign because Christ has finally come. Look at all the signs and, and the things, the promises. Often in the Old Testament, they relate to blood. The promise of Christ shedding his blood in the New Testament. We have no ritual where I have to sacrifice any form of bull or goat or ram, anything. There's no sprinkling of blood upon you, upon me, upon an altar. The new covenant signs are simple. They're less gory. There's not as much glory, you might say. The new covenant signs are water and and bread and wine. Same substance, different administration. 
So too, in the Old Testament, to be a part of the Old Covenant community, you would have to be circumcised. In the New Testament, all that is needed is baptism. Not with blood, but with water. And so too, when we understand this sign of this separation, but then also this inclusion, as Peter preaches the first sermon at the, in, in Pentecost, and then Peter says, and the, the, the congregation asks, what must we do to be saved? He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone from whom the Lord your God calls to himself. So here we see that promise again of Abraham that this covenant made with you in chapter 17 is for you. It's an everlasting covenant for you and your offspring and those who are outside your house that have come far to be able to be with you. And so do we see this in Acts chapter 2. That Jesus, the Passover lamb, died to be able to cover the sins of his people. We see this connection in the book of Revelation in chapter 5. You read through the whole book. There's uh, 25 time, 29 times where the, the term lamb is used. But here in chapter 5, the living creatures and the elders sing out a new song to the Lamb, and they say, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seal, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priest to your, our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So we hear the promise of Christ is, is to include people from outside. There's things that separate and divide us. That is baptism of those inside the covenant community and those outside, but it does not mean no one is permanently excluded from that. We also need to see that the whole congregation of Israel is to keep it. Not merely just individuals by themselves, but as this covenant community celebrating this covenant meal is to be done with the whole body in households. A more direct translation might be that the whole flock shall keep it. Men, women, and children. See in verse 8 of chapter 13, that the sons and daughters are included in this Passover meal. Now, there are some movements that as they see this connection in the Old Testament of the Passover, and they try and apply it to the New Testament, and they say, well, all members of the church should be able to partake of the Lord's Supper. This is really uh, big in federal vision uh, groups and things like this. If you're interested more in this, I'd love to be able to talk to you in detail but just quite simply that here we see children referenced in this Passover meal, but these children that are referenced obviously have some form of comprehensive skill to be able to either talk and ask of a question, what does this mean, but also to be able to comprehend the answer. We even see this same criteria in the New Testament with the Lord's Supper that Paul explains in 1 Corinthians that a person needs to be able to eat and the bread and drink the cup in a worthy manner, or else what's going to happen is they're going to drink judgment upon themselves, guilty concerning the body and blood of Jesus Christ. That the person needs to be able to examine themselves and eat 
the bread and drink the cup. The Westminster Shorter Catechism explains it is required of them that they would worthily partake of the Lord's Supper, that they examine themselves in their knowledge to discern the Lord's body, of their faith to feed upon him, of their repentance, love, and new obedience, lest, coming unworthily, they eat and drink judgment to themselves. What we need to understand is the prescription in the Bible is not based on age. There's no requirement then of age to be able to say, that child must be 12. What it understands, that child must be able to examine themselves, lest they would condemn themselves by not understanding what they are doing when they eat of the, the um, Lord's Supper. That is based on, in our Presbyterian polity, under the oversight of the session, that they have made a clear profession of faith. We would say they are truly understand what they are doing when they partake of the Lord's Supper. And the Passover meal is that meal of Christ, that he is the Passover lamb. The Lord's Supper is the meal of remembrance and proclamation through faith that as we await the Lord to be able to come again. These great feasts that culminate in that final feast in Revelation, that lamb, that marriage supper of the lamb in Revelation chapter 19. Those who are invited are, have this great celebration, how we rejoice of the return of the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. This feast which Christ said that he would not partake until he was to be able to return and see us again in Matthew chapter 26. Finally and briefly, we see the last thing of covenant regulation. Covenant regulation. We see that this covenant meal is not only one that is created from man, but we see that this instruction comes from the Lord. In the very beginning in verse 30, 43, we see, and the Lord said to Moses. And the Lord spells out all of these things that they are to be able to do. That here, Moses and Aaron did not merely just sit on the side and said, well, how, how can we remind the people of what God did? This is instituted by the Lord himself that they might be able to remember what he had done. That we see the Lord prescribe these ways for us to be able to worship him. And in this passage we see specific rules that might seem somewhat ambiguous, ambiguous to us or, or we don't comprehend. Why shall we not take the flesh outside the house? Why do we have to only share it in the house? Why can't we take this meal, and go somewhere else. But here it's quite clear the Lord has specific things for them to be able to do. Why is it that they shan't, shall not break the bones of the lamb? Jesus explains that they've got one law for everybody, those who are inside the community, that there's one law for them to follow, for the native and the sojourner. Why is God so strict about how he wants to be worshipped? I've heard people say it doesn't matter how you worship God as long as you have the right heart. I think there's truth to that, that God does not look at the outward appearance, but does look at the heart. 
The example in the New Testament is not merely that it's that the New Testament, there's a connection between heart and the outward things. The problem with the Pharisees is they had no heart. The, their problem is they were like gravestones and graves, tombs, whitewashed tombs. They did all the outward things, but they did not have the inward reality to be able to partake them. The issue is not God being strict. The issue is often what we seek to be able to do is always make our and in, in invent new ways. It's a problem ever since the very beginning. See, Cain and Abel bring these things, and the first the, the offering of Cain brings is not acceptable to God. And we see it all throughout scriptures that there's many people that try and invent new ways to be able to worship God but they don't actually understand what they're trying to do. They become the center rather than God. The problem is not God. The problem is our hearts that are prone to wander, prone to be able to forget, prone to be able to leave that God that we love. But God gives us his word to be able to help us, to guide us, to light our path. He knows that our hearts are bent and twisted. He knows our frame. So he gives us his promises and ways to be able to remember His faithfulness and His Word to be able to help us, to guide us. For the Israelites, under the Old Testament, the Lamb was that shadow of the one to come, the Lord who was going to provide for His people. Those who ate the Passover in faith, waiting for the promised Messiah, were blessed. We too have received this blessing of a sacrament, not done with blood, but with the Lord's Supper which is exactly what we need to be reminded of. Paul's argument in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is that here they are, they're coming together, they're eating and drinking together. And they have some apparent understanding, they think this is the Lord's Supper. But Paul comes to them and says, you're eating and drinking, but that's not what it is. You're not actually celebrating the Lord's Supper as he had prescribed it. You're twisting and distorting it. And so it has no resemblance to the sacrament commanded by Jesus. And Paul shows in contradiction that this man-made celebration of licentiousness, and he teaches them and shows them the true sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And how does he begin? He says that I received from the Lord and I also delivered to you. Your Paul did not invent the Lord's Supper. Jesus did as he instituted on the night that he was betrayed. It's not some man-made tradition thought up by the apostles thinking, how can we remember Christ's birth, uh, death? That here... God has blessed us with these means of grace. I heard one preacher explain it one way, that the means of grace are the, the great dump truck that comes and God blesses his people with. He backs up his blessing as we come together and we hear the word preached. And he pours his grace out upon us. The Lord's Supper as we come together is his people, that his grace is poured out in full on us. 
And the Lord's Supper is one of these ways we receive this grace. Again, we're not coming to these passages in the Old Testament trying to crack the code and trying to understand what's happening. We see Christ clearly in these passages. We see Christ in every page of the Old Testament. We see the way God relates to his people and gives them a means to be able to deliver this grace and reminds them of his graciousness and their slavery, been saved from slavery. We see Christ as the lamb who was slain, our Passover lamb, as Paul explains it. The lamb without blemish, as Peter wrote. There's another clear shadow here in this passage. Shows us Jesus. Do you see it? Here in this passage, we see this commandment of these strict rules that are laid out, that none of the bones shall be broken, in verse 46. And as John writes about this, Jesus hanging upon the cross, he records two things that are very important. One that happens to Jesus and one that does not happen to Jesus. The first is that he explains that Jesus was pierced through the side. And he says that this is to be able to fulfill the prophecy from Zechariah in chapter 12, verse 10. But the second is that it's to fulfill the prophecy in Exodus chapter 12, verse 46. And John explains that Jesus' bones were not broken, and he writes it this way. And he says, For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And here John applies this passage in Exodus chapter 12, and he says, This Passover lamb in which we're talking about speaks of Christ to come. That this is fulfilled when Christ's bones are not broken on the cross. Now you just think about this phenomenal event. You think about all that Christ went through in those last days. Been beaten, whipped, bruised, thrown about, carrying his cross, tormented, beaten with um, hammers and nails to be able to hold him on the cross, and not one of his bones was broken. And here, John says, when we speak of the Passover lamb, we're speaking of Christ and is fulfilled in Christ. Now we can begin to understand what the Westminster Divines wrote when I read it before, that there is not two covenants of grace differing in substance, but one of the same under various dispensations. John explains that the Lamb is a shadow and Christ is the substance. That he said that he was full that none of his, this was all written to fulfill that none of his bones would be broken. It says the bones of lamb, but he speaks of the bones of the lamb of God, who is here there to be able to take away the sins of the world. We see here in this passage as they go, this covenant exclusion, those that cannot partake, but those can through circumcision, but also the shadow of Christ to be able to come in the covenant regulation. Well, let's go to Lord in prayer. Let us pray. O gracious and most merciful Father, we give you thanks and praise 
that even in a passage that seems so obscure to us, Lord, that the New Testament authors were able to be able to see and behold Christ in this passage. Lord, help us as we begin to be able to understand and read through your word that we would see Christ on every page, giving thanks and praise to you that we are saved through the same means, through faith in Jesus Christ, that you give us and send your Holy Spirit that we are able and willing to believe. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.